introduce to some of the freedoms of thought that I have. You can judge, I think, of the strength and weakness of it. Uh, my presentation today is uh, about the moral, or if you prefer, political challenge of seeing the moral, or if you prefer, political force of broken old things. Uh, to cast it forward, I'll warn you that I'm working towards suggesting that images we've come to associate associate, perhaps even domesticate, with names such as the picturesque or the sublime, might present real challenges to thought in the 19th century, and perhaps even today. If nothing else, I hope to encourage you not only to see the darkness Ruskin finds in an image such as this 1812 Turner print of a refectory in a ruined medieval abbey in Yorkshire, uh, <clears throat> or the complex violence written into the frontispiece of uh, the Libra Studiorum from the same year, his collection of prints of landscapes from that same bellicose period. That is, of course, from the year when Napoleon invaded Russia. But to recognize these phenomena, the death and the ruin, as pressing and current topics uh, is what I hope to encourage us to do together. Now we look at the, the frontispiece of the Libra Studiorum and we see a jumble of matter, fish, birds, broken capitals against the decaying Gothic wall. Uh, Ruskin saw these things, of course, but he also saw the painting in the middle, A Rape of Europa, and looking closely at the print, he saw a landscape of ruins. And in Zeus and Europa, he saw the parents of uh, Mimas and Redamantis, two of the three judges of the dead in the underworld, bound for Europe, and this movement towards Europe, and this question of judgment, and the, uh, the location of ruins are the topics I'll be returning to over and over. Ruskin finds death when he looks at these images, a death that is both actual and emblematic, but I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, I was asked when I gave a version of this paper a few days ago to say a few words about the genesis of the, of the project, and I'll, I'll spare you that because it's a long enough paper, uh, but I, I thought I'd preserve one thought, which is that the reason I work on literature and the fine arts in the 19th century is because it allows me to think about some fundamental methodological questions and questions of principle. What does it mean to own something? What does it mean to see something? What is the difference between looking at something one owns and at something one can never imagine possessing? What's the effect of loving something one has never seen? These strike me as questions of permanent interest, both personally and politically, and I see them work through in levels of detail or material force that are uniquely interesting in the writings on art of the long 19th century. I mention this because there's a tendency when encountering the kind of material I'll be presenting to focus on the recovery of lost or understudied material. While I think that recovering and not, not allowing things to be lost is very important, the kind of approach this work represents succeeds or fails insofar as it manages to use its scholarship to move our ideas. My talk today combines two distinct topics which, with which I've been wrestling. Both puzzles I do not yet think I've fully resolved. In the first instance, I became interested in a pattern I felt I had found that was both obvious and strange. When something is large, we back up or rise up in order to see it as whole as possible. I found myself reflecting on instances in which this common action came to be manifested as a fantasy, on why such a basic motion might take a highly stylized or extreme form. And of course, the topic was more than a formal one, having interesting associations with questions of complicity, engagement, witness, and identity. Where do we stand when we consider things? From where do we understand ourselves to be speaking or looking? Recent years have seen a return to the question of perspective as an alternative to simpler versions of subjectivity, a gambit with political or ethical implications um, that are uh, still pressing and important. So uh, let me lay out briefly what this uh, long and, and, and two-part paper will look like. After a brief reflection on perspective, which I've already somewhat anticipated, my plan is to turn to the extraordinary enlightenment fantasies of Francois Volney before concluding somewhat, somewhere between Ruskin and uh, the critic uh, Walter Benjamin. Uh, though our own day will be in sight just off the horizon of all times in my talk, and sometimes very much up close. My talk is run from a larger project reflecting on the conceptual role of matter in the long 19th century. This particular paper attempts to bring together two or possibly three distinct responses to the damaged remains of the past and put them into conversation with each other and with recent events and the cultural responses they have provoked. So its methodological challenge resides in the linking of disparate periods and kinds of material 
And the fact that I did this linking by putting a lot of pressure on a recurrent figure, representations of the viewer rising up to see and judge. It's more formal preoccupations aside, this presentation is about the intersection of antique ruin with political grief. In that sense, it plays back and forth between realms we often keep separate, not just the distant past, when the now ruined monuments were first constructed or even when they were first destroyed, and the urgencies of the modern day, but also the political and the aesthetic topics still frequently either kept scrupulously separated or run together by the simple expedient of removing one of the terms. The aesthetics is simply as political. Uh, it's also very much about the perspective of rising up uh, and getting a view, as I keep saying, so let me turn to that subsection. Prepositions used to describe the processes of perception easily become tendentious. The physical relationships between viewer and object they describe can seem all too ready to take an emblematic turn. To look over indicates a kind of care, which is denied when we overlook. To look down on a thing is so very different from looking down upon it. We may try to gain some perspective, or we try to losing perspective, depending on whether we look over or overlook, or look down on, or look down upon the sight. So what does it mean to rise up from something in order to contemplate it, and to represent that moment of rising? I'll be arguing that this action of rising may be understood in some measure as a convention with specific associations, the fantastic movement of the perceiving self to seek relief, serving as evidence of the pressure causing the need for that relief, a convention that also interpolates the viewer as inside and outside the frame of the image. This is all rather abstract, but it's going to get all concrete in a minute, don't worry. In short, I want to talk about broken things and something like the sublime. Not the sublime understood as it sometimes has been since Kant as a way of experiencing the rational faculties irremediably overwhelmed before a thing on which they can no longer reflect, but as simultaneously providing a relief from or evidence for something awful for which we may or may not want to take responsibility, and as thereby opening up the door to reflection. So not the sublime to put so much as a reflection as a reflection its evocation might provoke. So now to my first instance. In 1791, two years after the revolution, Constantin-François Chasbouf, the Comte de Volny, delegate to the National Assembly, an intrepid traveler, published Ruin, uh, Ruins, Reflections on the Revolutions of Empire, an Enlightenment text often cited as a resource in Romantic studies, though still surprisingly understudied. Translated in 1792 for, uh, for Joseph Johnson by James Marshall, Godwin's dear friend, it's a frequent footnote for students of Frankenstein, possibly where you may remember it. It's a text with which Felix teaches French to, to Safi, and so it's the work from which the creature learns language, also history, and generally what a mixed bag of humankind is. It's also sometimes mentioned because of its association with Thomas Jefferson, who knew only personally, and uh, apparently was the author of a new translation from 1802, which is what I'm using. The adventure of the text begins with an unnamed traveler surveying Palmyra, the great ruined city in the Syrian desert, in 1784. And the specificity of the date, as we will see, intersects in important ways with that feeling of timelessness that a ruin will generally provoke. But his arrival is prefaced by a long, melancholy survey of mankind provoked by the earlier part of his voyage. As will often be the case with the writers I discuss, moral or political failing as will often be the case with writers I discuss, moral or political failing soon comes to be figured as the experience of abandonment and ruination. It's one of the challenges of this material, and you see it very clearly when we get to Ruskin in the second half of the talk, that the conditions illustrated by destruction are at once extreme manifestations of the historical crisis of long-standing and of the pressure of more immediate conditions. So this is his description of leading up to his arrival in Palmyra. Every day I found my, in my route fields abandoned by the plow, villages deserted, and cities in ruins. Frequently I met with antique monuments, wrecks of temples, palaces and fortifications, pillars, aqueducts, sepulchres. By these objects my thoughts were directed to past ages and my mind absorbed in serious and profound meditation. This intersection of social rumination and the contemplation of ruins reaches its high point in Palmyra, and the process by which it gets there is carefully detailed. After three days' travel in barren solitude and having passed through a valley filled with grottoes and tombs, my eyes were suddenly struck on leaving this valley and entering a plain with a most astonishing scene of ruins. Oh, hello. 
Let's say you're playing with that. So, this is an astonishing scene of ruins. It consisted of a countless multitude of superb columns standing erect, and which, like the avenues of our parks, extended in regular files, farther than the eye could reach. Among these columns, magnificent edifices were observable, some entire, others in a state half demolished. So this is a view from Robert Woods and James Dawkins' important 1753 folio, The Woods of Palmyra, on which much of the is based, as he never actually uh, got there, and certainly his illustrator did not. What follows begins as a fairly conventional uh, romantic narrative <coughs> of antiquarian travel. Quote, after a walk of three quarters of an hour along these ruins, I entered the enclosure of a vast edifice which had formerly been a temple dedicated to the sun. And I accepted the hospitality of some poor Arabian peasants who had established their huts in the very area of the temple. Here I resolved for some days to remain that I might contemplate at leisure the beauty of so many stupendous works. Give a sense that eventually he's going to end up in one of those hills. Our traveler encounters manifold sublimities at this location. The vast spaces of the desert give way to the astonishing scene of ruins, the countless multitudes of columns that go beyond the reach of the eye, vast edifices, stupendous works. In fact, he's staying at the Temple of Bel, the god of the sun. Here's an image of the temple, and here's a plan of the site of the enclosure in wooden Dawkins. It bears saying that sublimity, the sublimity of this location is overdetermined. As Wood knows, Palmyra has a long-standing association with the concept as the home of Longinus, minister to Zenobia, the city's famously cultured and rebellious queen who in the third century incurred the wrath of the Roman Empire and saw herself made captive and her city destroyed. Boldly sensitive traveler steps out that very evening and his walk brings him to a panoramic vantage point on the scene, which is the important moment captured in the front of My mind lost in reflection, I had advanced as far as the Valley of Sepulchres. I ascended the heights that bounded and from which the eye commands once the whole of the ruins and the immensity of the desert. The dusk increased and already I could distinguish nothing more than the pale phantoms of walls and columns, the solitariness of the situation, the serenity of evening and the grandeur of the scene impressed my mind with religious thoughtfulness, the view of an illustrious city deserted. The remembrance of past times, their comparison with the present state of things, all combined to raise my heart to a strain of sublime meditation. I sat down on the base of a column, and there my elbow on my knee, and my head resting on my hand, sometimes turning my eyes towards the desert, sometimes fixing them on the ruins, I fell into a profound reverie. The ruined city points a moral lesson to our traveler. Here, said I to myself, an opulent city once flourished, this was the seat of a powerful empire. Yes, these places now so desert, a living multitude formerly animated, and an active crowd circulating the streets, which at present are so solitary. As the passages I've cited will make clear, the opening of ruins provides a complete review of the elements that go into creating a sublime experience. From overwhelming space to incalculable time, and including the disturbing qualities that we associate more with birth than with Kant, obscurity, and fear. The traveler's experience of the sublime space at once an intellectual and an emotional challenge inevitably raises a question for him. The temples are thrown down, the palaces demolished, the courts filled up, the towns destroyed, and the earth stripped of inhabitants seems a dreary burying place. Great God, from whence proceeds such melancholy revolutions? Why are so many cities destroyed? Why is not that ancient population reproduced? And so on. Experience, idea, and emotion move together as observation stimulates reflection, reflection tears that do not indicate the end of thought, but its beginning, but its beginning. And it's worth emphasizing the relationship between thought and sublime here because they may allow us to nuance and even historicize more recent claims. Uh, after all, as Jacques Rancière has suggested, thinking about the sublime and the argument of, of influential recent theorists, the aesthetic has become in the last 20 years the privileged site where the tradition of critical thinking has metamorphosed into deliberation on mourning, so mourning rather than thought. While thus far Volney's traveler would be aligned with the sensibility Rancière is describing, the mourning built into the sublime sensibility of critics such as Lyotard uh, that uh, Rancière is interested in challenging is precisely not a deliberation. 
in any true meaning of the word, certainly not as it is for our traveler. As Rancière goes on to explain, the reinterpretation of the content analysis of the sublime makes art a witness to an encounter with the unrepresentable that cripples all thought and thereby a witness for the prosecution against the arrogance of the grand aesthetical political endeavor to have thought become world. In this sense, the aesthetic becomes the sublime, becomes an emblem of political failure. Reflection on art, to go on with Rancière, become, became the site where a mise en scène of the original abyss of thought and the disaster of its misrecognition continued after the proclamation of the end of political utopias. For the line of thinking Rancière has in his sights, the encounter with art in the modern period is always, in some measure, sublime, insofar as it involves a repeated moment of unthinking, unthinkable encounter with an unassimilable other that stands for the melancholy fact of political loss. I'm suggesting that we recognize this is not what we see in Palmyra in 1784. The traveler's thoughts turn to France and an initial contrast with this modern dynamic nation is followed immediately by the anxious fear that Europe as a whole might be fated to the same destiny as Asia. I won't, I won't uh, read this. Uh, the sensitive traveler weeps and offers two possible reasons for the degenerative tendencies of human affairs on which he has been reflecting. In a Hardy-esque vein, he proposes either chance or the workings of an inscrutably malevolent god as the source of all this disappointed civilization. I gave myself up to the most gloomy meditations on human affairs. Unhappy man, said I, uh, Brian, uh, in my grief, blind fatality plays with thy destiny, a fatal necessity rules by chance the lot of mortals. But no, they are the decrees of celestial justice that are accomplishing. A mysterious god exercises his incomprehensible judgments. His was pronounced a secret malediction against the earth. It is at this point, when he has traced the melancholy outcome of human efforts to a divine malediction, that the pale phantom of walls and columns takes on anthropomorphic form. A genie appears. Provoked by the traveler's misunderstanding, he will become guide, an interpreter, and the medium by which the traveler's rise, which had begun on the desert floor, reaches its uh, remarkable apogee. And I won't, uh, I won't uh, read this. But, uh, the vision associated with the place by his dress and his emergence from the tombs clearly has been provoked by the short-sighted reflections of the traveler. He offers a third option. If you remember, there was blind fatality and a cruel god before, right? So you get a different option. <clears throat> uh, uh, where is this? How long, he exclaims, will man importune the heavens with unjust complaints? How long, with vain clamors, will he accuse fate as the author of his calamities? Unjust man, if you can for a moment suspend the delusions which fascinate your senses, if your heart be capable of comprehension, of comprehending the language of argumentation, interrogate these ruins, read the lessons which they present to you. No, it's like a denial of the sublime as we can understand it today. Interrogate, read, uh, think. The genius lesson is one of responsibility. I'm sorry, this one, unjust man. Falsely you accuse fate and the divinity. Injuriously you refer to God because of your evils. Tell me, perverse and hypocritical race, if these places are desolate, if powerful cities are reduced to solitude, is it he that has occasioned the ruin? Is it his hand that has thrown down these walls, sacked these temples, mutilated these pillars? Or is it the hand of man? Is it the arm of God that has introduced? And I'm interested in the detail, all, all that's entailed. It's not just the destruction of places, it's the displacement of people, so that's one of the reasons. Uh, and, and in a way, he's reminding us of, of all that's left out, we just look at ruins. Uh, is it the arm of God has introduced the sword into the city and set fire to the country, murdered the people, burned the harvest, rooted up the trees, and ravaged the pastures? Or is it the arm of man? And when after this devastation, famine has started up, is it the vengeance of God that has sent it, or the mad fury of mortals? No. No, the caprice of which man complains is not the caprice of destiny. The darkness that misleads his reason is not the darkness of God the source of his calamities. It's himself, resides in himself, man bears it in his heart. When he finds the traveler responsive to his instruction, the genie transports him far above even the eminence to which he had already reached, giving him a new perspective on the world of human agency. Rise, mortal, said he, uh, he says, continue to travel's upward trajectory into a fantastic realm, and disengage yourself from that corporeal frame with which you are encumbered. 
and uh, instantly penetrated us with a celestial flame. The ties affixed to the earth seemed to be loosened and lifted by the wing of the genius. I felt myself like a light vapor conveyed in the uppermost region. There, from above the atmosphere, looking down toward the earth, I had quitted. I beheld the scene entirely new. Under my feet, floating in empty space, a globe similar to that of the moon, but smaller and less luminous, presented to me uh, one of its faces. And this lots to be said about the fact that he knows just been lifted out of the earth. The minute he gets far enough, he can't recognize it anymore. We'll, we'll see this problem of recognition is, is upon it. Uh, at, at this point, we have a, an elaborately staged version of what Amanda Anderson has described as cultivated distance. We may see here simply an anticipation of what she calls the wide and long view, which reminds us that an author such as George Eliot aspires to in its natural poem, The Late Enlightenment. I think that's reasonable enough. But I also want to emphasize that the ambivalence about reaching that view that concerns Anderson's project is also written into the process in this text. Not just in the long setup required to get there, or in the fantastic nature of arrival, but in the failure of distance alone to give insight. And uh, it's too long to decide it all, but he gets lifted up, he looks down, he sees the little, first he thinks the moon, he realizes the earth, he sees little bugs on it, it's only when the genie touched his eyes that he sees the, the people on it. It's an, it's an impossibility to be far enough that you take in the whole, and yet uh, to be able to see the detail. This is a project that the text is really interested in, in, in making difficult or showing us the difficulty of it. For reasons of time, I'll spare you a long passage in which the traveler cannot understand what he sees below him, which at first takes to be the moon. I'll just say the lessons of the genie will only be complete with one more magical act, itself indicative of the challenge of thinking, knowledge, and perspective. He touches the traveler's eyes to allow him to see detail even at, the, at this great distance. And the importance of this moment is indicated by the text's second image, uh, the only uh, two words to read that typically accompany the text, which relays to, to the reader in a more prosaic register the kind of view accessible from the impossible vantage point of, occupied by the traveler. The lesson of, because I mean, you have to ask yourself, what's the value of, the, of a print like this, right, in the book? And I think it is just to emphasize uh, the challenge of seeing the the lesson of the genie amounts to a history of the destructive drives of religion. And if the traveler, that's the little genie is going to teach him religion. And if the traveler is a willing pupil, it's in part because that history is not simply in the past, but urgently present to his view. As he gazes down on the distant orb, he sees not vestiges of old conflicts, but the current role of religion in shaping the world. What at first looks to him like agitated insects turns out to be Russia in the midst of annexing the Crimea as Catherine the Great in fact did in 1784, the Russian Federation would do again in 2014. An important development in the long-lasting power struggle with the failing Ottoman Empire, which the text sympathetically envisions as an affront to its Muslim population. Now this is a vital historic point of inflection for Volney is indicated by the fact that the book opens <coughs> with this very event, an extremely specific temporal marker, the significance of which is largely lost to memory but it has achieved a sad new topicality in our own day. In the 11th year of the reign of Abdul Hamid, son of Ahmed, Emperor of the Turks, when Nogai's Tartars were driven from the Crimea, I was traveling in the Ottoman dominions and through those provinces which were anciently the kingdoms of Egypt and Syria. For reasons I will touch on below, it's striking that Volney highlights in the note not only the armed struggle, but the cultural clash and ultimately the displacement of populations. In the footnote in the 11th year, and again, it's just reiteration, I think, for emphasis. In the 11th year of Abdul Hamid, that is 1784, the Christian era, and 1198 of the Hegira, the immigration of the Tartars took place in March, immediately on the manifesto of the emperors declaring the Crimea to be incorporated with Russia. Which brings me to a subsection tentatively titled Height and Damage, or Virtual Reality. The elements on which ruins is structured are clear enough, and in many ways not surprising. The visual experience of sublime space becomes readily analogous to the boundless expanse of time because it's more available to the mind. Vast spaces we can almost see come to stand in for millennia we cannot. The ruin plays a unique double role as a relic from an otherwise unreachable antiquity, the lesson of which is at once the accidental durability of things and the actual vulnerability of the system in which those things come into being. Still, I'm interested in the relationship between what Volney has taken so much trouble to stage and what the genie argues. The rising up to a generalization, to perception, movement up first onto the hill, then into the heavens, which the reader in some way emulates, is purely important. 
as is the insistence on the moral lesson, not to say responsibility, that the contemplation of ruins might open up, considered from the right vantage. We don't have far to search in order to find the political work of the ruin in the Romantic period. I'm sure some of these are occurring to you. Perhaps most famously, Shelley's Ozymandias, itself a work whose ironies owe a debt uh, to Volney. Still, topographically speaking, Shelley's poem, with its lone and level sand stretching far away, is very flat. Keats' sonnet on seeing the elder marbles better captures the kinds of motions provoked by broken antiquity, the way that, as in the case of Volney's text and images, the expanse of time becomes uh, spatialized. The manifold incoherences of the poem mark the wonder it contains by making the stones into mountains, pinnacles and steeps, to be climbed by gesturing towards an Empyrean range in which the speaker cannot stay, as it reaches towards a height that the mind can faintly describe, but at which it cannot, in fact, arrive. So these are some 19th century analogs. And of course, there's the well-known image of the New Zealander visiting a ruined London in Blancard, Gerald, and Gustave Doré's London from 1872, itself drawn from various hints in Macaulay, owing a debt to the whole address. But can the contemplation of broken things do more than ironize human ambition, as Doré or Ozymandias do, or paralyze thought and feeling in a sublime moment, as in the Keats? What would it mean to take seriously the question of caretaking and responsibility the traveler raises? John Ruskin certainly did. Here he is, sounding very much like Bolney's genie, the political economic art in 1857. Fancy what Europe would have been now if the delicate statues and temples of the Greeks, if the broad roads and massy walls of the Romans, if the noble and pathetic architecture of the Middle Ages had not been ground to dust by mere human rage. You talk of the scythe of time, the tooth of time. And in a way, this, this paper is in a way about the failure of metaphor, metaphors that are too much. You talk of the scythe of time, the tooth of time. I tell you, time is scytheless and toothless. Is we who gnaw like the worm, we who smite like the scythe, it is ourselves to abolish, ourselves to consume. We are the mildew and the flame, and the soul of man is to its own work as the moth that frets when it cannot fly, and as the hidden flame that blasts where it cannot illuminate. All these lost treasures of human intellect have been wholly destroyed by human industry of destruction. The marble would have stood its 2,000 years as well in the polished statue as in the parody cliff, but we men have ground it to powder and mixed it with our own ashes. The walls, the ways would have stood as we would have left not one stone upon another and restored its pathlessness to the desert. The great cathedrals of old religion would have stood as we would dash down the cart work with axes and hammers and bid the mountain grass bloom upon the pavement and the seaweeds chant in the galleries. So about eight months before I started working this material, the group generally known as Islamic State in Syria, or ISIS, blew up the Temple of Bel Palmyra, where Bomi's travelers stayed, along with other irreplaceable ruins, I'm sure you will notice. Insofar as modern culture is at all familiar with the city of Zenobia and Longinus, uh, and I wrote this before civilization started with this very thing, but there you go. Uh, yeah. Not civilization, as we live in civilization, the TV show. Um, uh, insofar as modern culture is all familiar with the city of Zenobia and Longinus, it's largely because of these images which were widely distributed at the time. Originally, I had thought about addressing this event in relation to related moments of recent iconoclastic destruction, such as most dramatically the Taliban's dynamiting of the Buddhas that had stood at Bamiyan, only half a millennium or so less time than the Temple of Bel had stood. Perhaps with some reference to the easy but nevertheless important paradox that the admiration for a broken past is always a pretty immediate effect the act of uh, vandalism. That the term vandalism used as we do today is a product of the emergence of the museal, emergence of the museal sensibility responding to the depredations of the French Revolution itself. An invention that Miguel Tamen has reminded us in Friends of Interpretable Objects that may be directly traced the writings of the revolutionary Abbe Henri Grégoire in a number of reports to the convention in 1794. I felt Tamen's equivocal description of the writer on vandalism suited me fine. Typically, a person who, when given to theoretical pronouncements, regrets general ignorance, and when given to empirical descriptions, denounces shocking instances of the effects of ignorance. But as, as I reflected on the long and constant historical links between museums and vandalism, these are objects that were uh, 
destroyed in the French Revolution and soon found themselves in the Musée de Cluny. Uh, and in particular about how the first museum of medieval art was founded to house the very objects that had been eagerly broken by the saint Lot a few decades before, emblems of the ecclesiastical power of royal prerogative, become sources of nostalgia or formalist appreciation, I came to feel the pressure to do more than regret and denounce ignorance. Indeed, given the general obliviousness in most quarters when it came to the very existence of Palmyra, or to of the great Buddhas of Bamiyan before their destruction, it would be foolish to predicate an argument about these events in relation to knowledge and ignorance. It should be difficult to claim that the men who placed the dynamite around statues knew them less than those who, on seeing the pictures of their destruction, felt a spasm of rage and then went on about their business. If anything, the destruction of these irreplaceable objects illustrates the difficulty we have truly formulating our response to them. The dust and smoke forms around the outline of our own powerful ignorance. Don't destroy those idols from the past, you want to tell the religious fanatic. They don't matter to us. We're not the way you think they do. Don't destroy those idols from the past, you want to say. They matter so much to us, in ways we can't explain. I find myself thinking not so much about the objects that are gone as about something that may seem an evasion of the horror of the act. But I hope it's instead a way of reflecting on our, on our experience of it, on the way in which the experience of damage calls for a recasting of the self in space, for a movement up and away, a kind of sublime escape into rationalization that is at once like uh, that of Keats's viewer gazing at the other marbles, and like Volney's viewer raised above mere human contemplation. At a presentation I attended on the topic of cultural artifacts at risk in zones of conflict a few years ago, the audience was shown a satellite image that captures an area in southern Iran that has been subjected to very aggressive plundering. The eye needs to be corrected because what it quickly recognizes as a lunar landscape proves to be something quite different. Fields of holes that looters dig at archaeological sites to reach antiquities to trade on the black market. The speakers describe a problem of extraordinary complexity. Reputable museums largely shun objects acquired by means of this violent prospecting, which at once steals from the nations we like to say have property these objects, and funds the military ambitions of the looters. But if, if they don't acquire these pieces, their likely destiny is to enter private hands and never be seen again. If they do purchase, the museums promote more looting, which destroys the archaeological evidence of the site, again reminding us of the unstable nature of the value of the archaeological object. Once it gets pulled out of there, it has to be. It's, it's just a, an antiquity. The image up on screen in the course of the discussion of this urgent and yet unresolvable situation rang a bell, even after I realized it was not the moon. It reminded me of the widely distributed one, uh, showing the evidence of the destruction of the Temple of Bell in Palmyra. This similarity is not so much formal as structural, structural or ontological, having to do with the role of distance in trying to provide the evidence of violence or in just organizing or processing its effects or affects. As I was reflecting on the relationship between height and damage, between evidence and reflection, and even between the things we call news and those we understand as history, it happened that technology provided a new opportunity to think about this complex of issues. In November of 2015, the New York Times released a peculiar virtual reality viewer, a disarming manifestation of cyberpunk design, combining the look of an old-school stereograph of the sort popular 100 years ago with a humble and recyclable construction material to create, improbably enough, a new receptacle for one's iPhone, not to say a new mode of intimate cyborg contact with our devices, making them quite literally what they often seem figuratively, a whole world. Of course. The most important technology involved in virtual reality is not simply the mode of distribution, but a kind of filming that takes in every conceivable direction. So if you look up while watching a movie, you'll see what's above you. If you look down, you take in the earth of the film. In short, virtual reality is a form of representation of almost infinite variety because of the range of depth it allows the viewer. Not the planar three-dimensionality that has become common in movies, but a multi-dimensionality that immerses, like reality itself. The distribution of this kind of visual experience through the phone, however, is bound to affect its nature in ways predictable and otherwise. It's sufficient for my purposes to point out that while we have grown familiar with the observation that there's something isolating and limiting in getting, as it were, one's news, uh, one's own news, as one does over the internet, picking and choosing sites one consults for information, there's a kind of urgency of address built into the telephone, even today, a sense that instead of being a publicly viewable event to be taken in at a particular time, or when we check in for it, 
this information is liable to be importuning, like a call or a text message that we may try to ignore but that we cannot deny receiving. As is the news one chooses to view on the browser or a bell uh, that we're telling for each of us. The launch by the Times targeted two kinds of audience, the two offerings, both of which, to my mind, work together. The first was called, this, this was, I don't think, released here, or the, I mean, I'm not sure there is a here on the internet, but I don't think they were uh, widely uh, discussed here. The launch by the Times targeted two kinds of audiences, with two offerings, both of which work together. The first was called The Displaced, a brief and moving film introducing us to the lives of three children living in the aftermath of violent conflict in the Ukraine, South Sudan, and Syria. Power of the medium to show a world in the round was evoked by the astonishing distances covered by this melancholy film that introduces us to three lovely children whose lives have been placed beyond the hope of repair. Its sad theme notwithstanding, the film is beautiful and full, not only because of the hope we cannot help projecting onto the children, but because of the wealth of sensory impressions the medium allows us to experience. So there's some stills off my computer. The other film is altogether more trivial, though in many ways more ponderous. Take Flight features a number of famous actors, at least both together, I can never understand it. Take Flight features a number of famous actors floating in the air above New York City. For no reason. Abandoning the detailed realism of displaced, Take Flight finds in the same technology a kind of glamour and magic and the opportunity to play with death. That's more or less the film. By contrast, the only place where this kind of height is evoked in displaced is in the heartbreaking sequence showing food being dropped and gathered at a refugee camp in the Sudan. Reflecting on these technologies for representing the world, I found myself thinking of the ways in which Displaced carries out the work of its title. According to the untangled figures from the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, in 2014 there were, almost, there were almost 60 million refugees and internally displaced people around the globe. That's one in every 122 people on the planet. Not since World War II have there been so many refugees or IDPs. And it must be said that these are displacements of particular note because the individuals affected have refused to leave us alone, to suffer and die in place. The refugees flooding towards Europe have made a call on our capacities for conceptualization and for sympathy that has proved impossible to answer. The pressure of the tide of humanity, which reached over a million in 2015, and I we don't have to explain all this to you, but it's just a review for all the has overturned all possibility of simple response. Europe is reimposing internal borders, as you know. Politicians are unable to understand what the right moral action might be. Inevitably, chance events and how they are presented shape political outcomes. A baby drowns, the doors open, women are molested. Over the course of a New Year's celebration, they start to shut. Enough terrorist acts are linked to ongoing movement of individuals. The call comes to throw the bolt across the door. My own government uh, is shame shamefully saving to abandon almost everyone to their destinies, our own responsibility in shaping those outcomes notwithstanding. This place with its focus on beautiful, suffering individual children is evidently motivated by a deeply old-fashioned vision of sympathy, one designed to make us feel for injury and pain and how to remove. Paradoxically, the space opened up by the virtual reality machine gives an illusion of not being there, of being at a distance, just looking around, uninvolved, lacking a point of view because every point is available. Neither political responsibility for the crisis nor strong political action is called for, just feelings. My point is not to judge what the filmmakers <coughs> did not do. We're better off for having the film, uh, it gets seen. It's no small thing to humanize the damaged humanity uh, that we all so often uh, disdain. But I want to get back to the question of perception and uh, emotion that political issues I think also engage. We say sublime, and we mean almost too much by the term. I'll move from this very provisional beginning on these over large topics with the thought that what is particularly powerful about Volney's project is that the sublime marks not an impasse at the limit of thought, but an opportunity in the first instance to feel and then to learn and reflect. Perhaps it's not even the sublime at all in the contemporary understanding of the term that Volney wields and ruins as his gene raises his traveler up in the air, but then helps him make out and understand the human life below him, to make out without overlooking, perhaps even to lose perspective. 
When I was a boy, there was a concerted movement to get NASA to publish the first photograph of the world as a whole ever taken from space. And when it was finally released, that image became emblematic of the hope that a perspective on the whole would lead to greater kindness and care for each part. That the vulnerability of the planet and those upon it would be recognized and prized. We can chalk up the disappointment of that idea as just another in the long train of instances of technology and knowledge failing to make things better for us as a matter of course. Today, with footage from militarized drones and cruise missiles giving us recurrent access to a higher point of view, not to mention the vulgarization of the perspective of the whole promised by Google Earth, and here you can see Palmyra from that point of view, it can seem difficult to recuperate the utopian promise of perspective. Still, I like to think that in the model of Olney, who dates his work from a moment of east-west crisis, who takes his point of view from a ruined Roman city in a Syrian desert, even as he rises to contemplate the whole, we have an opportunity to think anew about the moral force of looking things over, which brings me to my second and somewhat shorter part of my talk, and also takes our uh, discussion towards more straightforwardly Victorian topics. As I attempt to work through a, a question that arose after I gave a presentation here a couple of years ago that involved the afterlife of this picture, which is now the Vatican Museum. Now, it's in the course of an elaborate argument, which does sound confusing as to be all too clear, so don't worry. I was, of course, in an elaborate argument in, a, in which I was interested in identifying the presence in Ruskin of elements traceable to this work as they were mediated to him through the late paintings of Turner. Turner saw the Raphael at the Musée of Napoleon when he rushed to Paris in 1802 during the year-long Peace of Amiens. There was a brief pause in the decades of armed hostility between Britain and France from 1793 to 1815. And he made a number of studies that demonstrate his interest, and I won't discuss them for the sake of time. I want to say just a few words about the Raphael. Universally recognized as a masterpiece from the moment of its posthumous completion in 1520, the widespread popularity of the work faded throughout the 19th century for reasons that may be obvious to you as you look at it. For modern taste, there's too much that is formally unresolved about the image, not to say religiously tendentious. On the upper level, Jesus rises, transfigured on Mount Tabor, in the company of Moses and Isaiah. If you haven't had this, another one of my rising figures, right? Uh, he rises, uh, transfigured on Mount Tabor, in the company of Moses and Isaiah, but while the apostles with them close their eyes and fall to the ground. The lower register shows in a darker light, in a different style, a scene that takes place in an entirely different realm than the all too human. While we witness the Messiah manifesting his glory to the eyes of nobody human in the floating upper register, the action down below vouchsafes us something far more typical of our lived experience. It's a view of failure. The horrible-looking boy at the off-center of the work is the object of all attention. The Bible tells us that he is possessed. He's constantly at risk of falling into fire or drowning in water. But the apostles, without their master and not yet able to do miracles, cannot cure it. It's only when Jesus returns from the mountain that the boy is saved. So I was talking about this painting a few years ago, which Ruskin, in fact, disliked, suggested that it influenced Turner Layton's career when he painted his mysterious canvas, The Angel Standing in the Sun of 1846. Turner, I wanted to argue, takes the awkward division between the sectors, the hovering separation between brutal human experience and divine, um, and divine distance from the Raphael, so the two planes. This was of interest to me because, as Elizabeth Elzinger has argued, Ruskin has in mind these images by Turner, especially the angel standing in the sun, when he completes the great ethical phenomenological study of creative formation, which is the two boyhoods. That's the culminating, it's easy to get lost with the two, because modern pages are sort of gigantic, but really the culmination of modern pages in volume five is the two boyhoods chapter. And Helsinger has demonstrated, I think, quite conclusively, the way the prose is derived from this painting, and I was interested in how it followed from what we see in the, in the Raphael for various reasons. So, here's the painting. Mass of swimming colors with Archangel Michael appearing on the Day of Judgment, his flaming sword in hand. In the foreground are Old Testament scenes of violence and pain. Adam and Eve, the body of Abel, Judah standing over the beheaded hall furnace. It's the story before and after Jesus, Old Testament crimes and apocalyptic judgment. In an appropriately overwhelming setting, Dismayed figures, including a distraught risen skeleton, stand in a vortex punctuated by a sun, whose light is distended in a long water reflection typical of the paper's work. Forming with the wheeling seabirds overhead, the feeling of human history repeating itself, 
even as it comes to an end from a desperate strand. So, the title of Ruskin's first book can seem almost vulgarly concrete and overbold, but it offers more than at first appears. The key terms are the adjectives landscape and modern, the last of which occurs twice. Both the celebration of landscape, as well, I'm sure many know this, but both the celebration of landscape as most other genres and of modern painters as better in any way than the old masters are bold claims in a period still substantially shaped by systems of value that put idealizing history painting at the apex and the works of the old masters unquestionably above all others, at least in theory. But the argument, I just want to remind you, is one thing, not two. There's something particularly about, particular about landscape painting now that makes its excellence <coughs> modern. That's what interests him. Something that was unavailable or different in earlier periods. In that sense, the book develops a historical claim and not simply a formal one, or a historical formal one, they're so closely alike. By the time the project of the book is complete with volume five in 1860, it is clear that the love of landscape mentioned in the title and the superiority in rendering it of modern painters is the bright light hovering over a great deal of human misery. It is the engagement with misery that makes the brightness in Ruskin's argument. So here's a turn in his argument that interests me, and it may well make my own presentation of the, of the matter seem strangely abrupt after all the setup, but it's a little more than a reading of this passage rather than a few bits of it. I'm showing the whole thing just to give you a sense of uh, where the, this passage is located. In the modern painter, the love of nature emerges historically for Ruskin as a compensation for what Ruskin calls the English death, the European death of the 19th century, of another range of power more terrible a thousandfold in its mere physical, this merely physical grasp and grief, more terrible incalculably in its mystery and shame. It's here as Ruskin looks for language to describe the inspiring force of this particular kind of death that Ruskin draws on Turner's work. Finding the astonishing and disturbing richness of his late paintings, language describes a situation and a sensibility he wants to claim is also driving much calmer work. Right? It's obvious that the angel standing in the sun is apocalyptic, but he wants us to think that even this early drawing from Turner's first trip to Yorkshire, Ruskin doesn't want us to miss the pool of dark water gathered at the foot of a column, the broken masonry, the loss of a community of monks, we should be eating in this tranquil place, slowly collapsing into nature. The language he draws from the angel of the sun is mysterious and overdetermined as he describes a sensibility shaping Turner's aesthetic formation. And their death, that old Greek question again, yet unanswered, the unconquerable specter still flitting among the forest trees at twilight, rising ribbed out of the sea sand, white, a strange Aphrodite out of the sea foam, stretching his gray cloven wings among the clouds, turning the light of their sunsets into blood. This has to be looked upon. So I was giving um, a presentation here, focusing on this lethal Aphrodite. I want to talk about the ways in which this figure had become this one, and the implications for the kinds of relationships Turner and ultimately Ruska as a reader of Turner were developing between the human and something beyond the human, say the divine, or perhaps the human as experience and as ethical judgment. I was working toward the claim that Paul Clay, who saw the work in Rome as the Transfiguration, does something interesting when he produces another version of the suspended messenger looking out at us. The one more characteristically modern, the divine figure rising up from a fallen world that's given such complete treatment as to be almost unbearable to modern taste in Raphael returns in the angel of the sun, no longer with Jesus revealing his divinity as a salvation to the world, but with the last judgment of all people by the sword bearing angel coming to judge and punish. Eighty years later, Benjamin proposed another figure, but one that's neither coming nor judging. And I'm, I'm actually just telling you the, the, the argument I was about to try to make, this is important to me still. You remember that Clay's Angelus Nobis is identified in the thesis of history as being blown back into the future by a catastrophic fall. This is how Walter Benjamin famously describes the work. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned toward the past, where we perceive a chain of events. He sees one single catastrophe, which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage, and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed, but a storm is blowing from paradise that has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future, to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. 
historians would call progress. The passion and clarity of Benjamin's figure, the moral legibility he ascribes to his image, makes it difficult to gainsay him, and I'm not exactly doing that. His emblematic addresses has constrained the options for later readers, though. I'd like to suggest that the evident legibility of the image Benjamin has brought before our eyes is in part dependent on what it leaves out. The angel and the sun, like the transfiguration, is an attempt to imagine an intersection between divine hopes and fears and human failings. Oddly enough, Benjamin, the materialist mystic, envisions a very narrow range of motion for his angel, only backwards. It's a pile of debris that rises up, and an unusual vulnerability in its tragic inability to act. It is separated from the fallible world, not by its place in another register, but by the very energies being expended by that world. We may think, before this angel, unable to make things whole, of Rancière's critique of the modernist sublime who cripples all thought, that makes, as he put it, reflection on art, a mise-en-scene of the original abyss of thought and the disaster of its misrecognition that continues after the proclamation at the end of political utopias. So I'm saying this is a, many means an excellent emblem for that sensibility. Above all, the fallen world is not shown to us in this image. It's only suggested by the language of the critic. So Benjamin uses the world, the angel doesn't. Though perhaps it might be better to say that the world is everywhere present and that we are the world in which the angel is gazing. We are the violence of history blowing it out of paradise, or even part of the debris rising before its stunned eyes. So I was working up to a claim of that nature in a room near here, about how in our own later period, the figure of the angel by itself, not shown engaging with the world, but overwhelmed by it, had become a particularly modern emblem of history. I wanted to reflect on what our place of identification as viewers is in this piece. Are we the angel or the people in history the angels witnessing? And how might we think about Ruskin's specter in this life? The specter must be looked upon. Ruskin's figure is not an angel, of course, but an unconquerable specter, a strange Aphrodite, death itself, which must be looked at. I was moving toward an argument about that specter and the way it may or may not interpolate us in ways similar to the clay or the Raphael, in which Jesus gazes out at what we can imagine should be a religious viewer, but which the painting as a whole, with its helter-skelter sightlines and gestures, its hidden eyes, and its benign but vaguely self-involved divinity foretell, not as first centuries in a church, but as subsequent ones in a museum. It's actually not a painting about looking. But then somebody in the audience asked a reasonable question. What is the English death? This particularity on the part of my author took me back a little on my claims. Is my argument, is my argument about a general relationship to matter, or is it a historical one? And if it is historical, what's, what's so particularly English at this juncture? How to pick up one bit of the rubble gathering at the feet of the angel of history? And why bother? Also, death is always a difficult figure to address because it's never fully a figure, of course. It stands always largely for itself, as for whatever else you want to call death. So when Ruskin, towards the close of the two boyhoods chapter of modern painters, identifies a haunting spectral Aphrodite as an inescapable figure for the unavoidability of death itself in the production of his most admired artist, He's developing a line of arguing about, about Turner and about destruction and haunting that I think has yet to receive its full due. And I'm, I don't think I'm giving it its full due. And, it's not, and I think it's not unrelated to what we saw in Volney. Although he gestures to a long period, including the Greeks, as he explains what he means by that, Ruskin has in mind a particularly 19th century phenomenon, or set of phenomena, including not only and really not primarily the military conflict that had characterized the continent since the period of Napoleonic struggle, but the economic violence typical of the unbridled capitalism of Britain in his day, a lethal combination that forms Turner's achievement, even when he appears to be looking away from it. Uh, still, the war is there. Right? He was 18 years old when Napoleon came down on Arcola, look on the map of Europe, and counted bloodstains on it between Arcola and Waterloo. So Ruskin himself causes my problem because he jumbles all this stuff together. This is just the beginning of the answer to the query. Death is a shaping pressure on all art for Ruskin. But the English death is specifically modern in its violent and its violence and its relation to social misery. And it's a particularly material one. Not alone, um, uh, sorry, not alone those bloodstains in the Alpine snow and the blue of the Lombard plain, he writes to the young Turner. The English death was before his eyes also. The life trampled out in the slime of the street, crushed to dust amidst the roaring of the wheel, tossed countlessly away into howling winter winds. And I don't think it's coincidentally, and it's not just because of Ruskin's general style, but this sounds rather similar to the passage from uh, the political economy of art about the destruction of objects. But in any case, 
crushed us in this royal wheel, tossed countlessly away into the howling winter wind along 500 leagues of rock fanged shore, or worst of all, rotted down to forgotten graves through years of ignorant patience and vain seeking for help from man, for hope in God, infirm and perfect, yearning as a motherless infant starving at the dawn, oppressed royalties of captives fought, vague aching fits of bleak, amazed despair. The depth of Ruskin's commitment to this idea of death as both a figure and fact makes the specter of fatality itself foundational for art. And the elements he sees in the specter, the ribs, the ocean, the sun, recur in any number of his analyses of what is beautiful and disturbing. It is that which must be looked upon. And in that sense, ghost, specter, and angel standing in the sun. Still, I take some comfort, and I'm drawing near my end, glad to hear. Still, I take some comfort in my failures to get to the bottom of the question of the English death from Ruskin's, Ruskin's own confession that he also fails to develop as he should have. Oh, I know, I back to it. Sorry. I have not followed out, as I also have done, had the task been less painful, my assertion that Turner had to paint not only the labor and the sorrow of men, but their death. There is no form of violent death which is, uh, which, uh, which is not painted. Preeminent in many things, so he is preeminent also bitterly in this. Flood and fire and wreck and battle and pestilence and solitary death. More fearful <coughs> Ruskin offers one example of the stand for many. The noblest of all the plates of the leaders to the Oregon declares, except for one, is the one engraved with his own hand of a single sailor yet living, dashed in the night against the granite coast, his body and outstretched hands just seen in the trough of a mountain wave between it and the overhanging wall of rock, hollow, polished, and pale with dressful cloud and grasping foam. And this is, in a way, a kind of like reshaping of a hanging suspended figure, kind of lowering and making not hanging at all, of course, making other utterly present in, in, in the world um, that's assuming the figure. This gruesome image, Ruskin claims, shows us a dark face to be seen looking out from every work of Turner's, but no more so than in the frontispiece of the Liber Studiorum, his collection of engravings which take us back to the place of ruins as an emblem for human actions. In Europa, carried off by the bull, he sees anticipated the birth of death and judgment under a destroyed city. After all, as I mentioned, Europa would become, would become from this union the mother of Minos and Radamantis, the judges of the underworld. The meaning of the entire book, Ruskin writes, that is the Liber Studiorum, is symbolized in the frontispiece, which he engraved with his own hand. Tire at sunset, the rape of Europa, indicating the symbolism of the decay of Europe by that of Tyre, its beauty passing away into terror and judgment. Tyre, of course, is an ancient city in what's now Lebanon, really not far from Palmyra, with uh, Europa headed toward Crete in the moment in which she will conceive the judges of the dead. Ruskin identifies a fatal quality in the landscape art of Liber Studiorum, one with judgment written into it, as well as an articulation between East and West that is more than conventional analogy. It's not just the case that England is like Carthage, but that the geographical movements of the myth captured in the print make the actual continuities between West and East that are the open secret of the Mediterranean entirely visible. It's an open secret that's also written in the wakes of the informal flotilla of refugees that flowed through it as I speak. Boldly leaves his traveler and his genie suspended in midair, gazing on the emerging conflagration between Russians and Tartars in the Crimea, which he wisely understands, and it's really remarkable, he understands it as a religious struggle not liable to quick resolution, even though its damage is immediate. But I hope I've illustrated by my focus on instances in which the play between ruin and current judgment emerges with new force, in which the memory of decay is a goad for action more than an encouragement for passive regret, is the force of antiquities in the figuring of possibilities for moral judgment. We talk a lot about classical remains when we reflect on them at all, which adds a multiple set of displacements to the topic. But of course, ruins are not limited to classical soil. They're everywhere in England where they are the concrete remains of a fundamental religious struggle, one the force of which Ruskin always recognized. The evidence of violence and subsequent decay we gloss over as the picturesquely Gothic is ultimately traceable to the act of supremacy of 1534, the Henry VIII, the head of a church, and led to the suppression of Catholicism and the destruction or forced abandonment of religious structures all over the island. Turner, a city boy, raised with the modern death of capitalism and Napoleonic era violence, finds a new kind of decay when he heads north, one that allows him to create a movingly engaged form of art that we limit when we do not recognize its scope or the losses that shape its lines. Uh, here's my last quotation. It's a description of this painting of a ruined rectory in Yorkshire, 
which Turner painted on his first trip to the country. And grave, for Ruskin, always means serious, but it also means death. Beauty and freedom and peace, and yet another teacher, graver than these, sound preaching at last here in Kirk's tall crypt, concerning fate and life. Here, where the dark pool reflects the chancel pillars, and the cattle lie in unhindered rest, the soft sunshine of their dappled bodies instead of crisp free specimens. Their white furry hair ruffled a little fitfully by the evening wind, deep-scented from the meadow time. Consider deeply the import of him, to him of this, his first sight of ruin. This time-scented Gothic ruin is particularly, it's a pretty modern memory of death, the modern death that gives Turner's art its meaning. As I close this long talk, I'll put up that globe again and tell you that uh, <clears throat> if only leaves uh, the traveler and the genie hanging there, I'll leave them there hanging there too, like Rosencrantz and Gilderstone, never arriving at their date with destiny. They never land, they never come down. What the traveler's shown in the balance of ruins is the entire world and its religious struggles. Indeed, the text developed into a long and strikingly learned account of the variety of odd and irreconcilable beliefs driving world religion, as well as a subtle and rich anthropological account of the rise of religion itself. The notable challenge of coming to grips with the material I've been presenting today, to my way of thinking, is due to the unstable play between admired art object, death as a figure in fact, and then judgment and agency. In Ruskin's Turner, as for Bowley's Traveler, the act of rising up emerges as a forceful revision of the sublime, one that recognizes the current force of historic damage and sees it as an opportunity to reflect that does not despair of judgment and therefore of ethical engagement.